Hey, y'all. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. It's Tuesday, and every Tuesday episode of this podcast is a conversation. And we have a good one for you today. I'm talking to Tim Robbins, the Oscar-winning actor. He has a new show on HBO. It's called Here and Now. But you know him from all of his other stuff. Probably most familiar with his work in The Shawshank Redemption, that classic, or Mystic River, or Howard the Duck. He has been in everything. He is one of those actors who's been at it and prominent for so long that you maybe think you know all about him. Here's the thing, dear listener, you do not. He told me all about the work he does on stage, not just in movies. He told me about this theater company that he founded. It's called The Actors Gang. And we talked about how the art that he makes and is making right now, how it speaks to this particular political moment. Tim's new HBO show, Here and Now, it feels like it is made specifically for this moment. It is a drama created by Alan Ball, he wrote the film American Beauty and also made Six Feet Under and True Blood. And the show here now, it's about a progressive multicultural family in Portland, Oregon. And they are struggling with family stuff, but they're also struggling with the realities of political life in America today. It's probably one of the first TV dramas to really grapple with, in a serious way, life in Donald Trump's America. Okay? It's a lot in here. I think you'll enjoy it. Here's me talking to Tim Robbins. We both were here in NPR's Culver City offices. And don't worry, we do talk about The Shawshank Redemption because that movie is just so good. All right, enjoy. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, Elemental P. I like that P. accent right there. What would you call that accent? W- I don't know. It's a little southerny, but you're not from the south, are no, you? You're I'm from, from California. Well, born West in, Covina. Born. Okay. Spent my first two years there, and then uh, Dad moved the family to Greenwich Village, New York City. That's so. a fun place to grow up, I'm guessing. It was the best decision they ever made, I think. Okay. West Covina versus Greenwich Village. Yeah. 1960. Walk me through. Okay, so born in West Covina, mm-hmm. raised in the West Village. How'd you get from there to acting, and when did you know you were going to do this? My dad was an actor after he uh, after he was a folk singer. He did uh, some musicals off Broadway and on Broadway. I saw him up on stage as a folk singer. I think that was the first time I got inspired to show off mm-hmm. as a kid. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I saw him on stage, and I I, I kind of got intoxicated by that. And my sisters were involved in this theater called the Theater for the New City in Greenwich Village, and I did their summer street program one year and started acting in that program every summer. And then when I went to college, I studied theater and acting and directing. And um, Were you good at it from the start? I think I was pretty good. Um, you know, certainly not when I started, but um, I think I learned. It was a really weird way to learn. What do you mean? Well, it was street theater, so... At college? No, this is as a kid, as okay. a, from 12 to 17. What is street theater? Well, we'd pack a truck, we'd have permits. Who was the we? Uh, the Theater for the New City. Okay. We'd pack a truck, we'd uh, have costumes and uh, a backdrop in that tr- truck and some musical instruments, and we'd have a permit for a place in Brooklyn, a park in Brooklyn, or a, a street do in Brooklyn. A show. We'd show up, unload, set the stage Stop up. It. Do a parade through the neighborhood to get an audience. How many people in the neighborhood were like, get the hell out of my neighborhood, you're loud. They loved it. They loved it. It was so unique and weird. But you had to to compete with some elements here. Like what? Like a mom yelling out the window, get out of here! Come home! (laughs) 
or a drunk or a junkie so wandering on the stage. Yeah, yeah. It was a lot of distractions. So you had to, oh. you know, have a, a good, bold voice and uh, and a commitment to the part you're playing. Were you acting and singing? Yeah. Really? Yeah. What was your favorite song to sing in these shows? Oh, I don't know. Oh, that's too far back. I don't remember the songs. Oh, uh, well, I remember one from, uh, I did a production of The Little Prince. I played The Little Prince uh-huh. when I was 13 years old. But um, that was like my first training, and and then I was in UCLA studying directing, and I um, won a contest there and got an agent and started to work. Mm-hmm. And so as a working actor, uh, and I, when the actors getting started, um, but I something was missing. And uh, in 1984, I took a a, a class with a, a guy named Georges Bigot, who was a, a, the main actor of the Théâtre du Soleil that had just been in. Los Angeles for the Olympic Arts Festival. Mm-hmm. And they were like the big sensation mm-hmm. of the festival. So four of us from the Actors Gang studied with him. And that really shifted my way of thinking about what theater is, what acting is, the importance of it, the uh, essential nature of it, and um, and the commitment it takes to do it right. Uh, one of the things that George said, which I, I, I still remember and I hold true to, is that you should never assume anybody in your audience could afford the ticket they paid for tonight. Mm. And that, in fact, you should assume that they paid their last dollar for it and had to walk 10 miles here because they couldn't afford the so bus. So you owe them your You all. owe them that much. Yeah. And that's, uh, from that point on, that, that was my the way I looked at I like what that. we do. It's not easy to make the decision to come to a theater when there's so many distractions. You know, there's yeah. all these movies that are playing. There's yeah. phones. There's internet. There's all this kind of stuff you can do. That you actually showed up at our door. We're so grateful. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a way to use that in podcasting and radio. I can't say assume they bought this ticket with their last bit of money, but I can't they, say maybe I I assume that they're listening to this podcast on their last. Two percent of battery life. There you go. And I owe them. That's right. Darn it! But a by the show. way, they have a choice of about eighty-five other podcasts <laughs> no, too, true. and oh, they've showed up 000. here. God, everybody gets right. podcasts these right. days. Right. So um, that's a big thing, yeah. and and I think that's kind of a good thing to apply to life too. You know, the fact that you have an interchange with someone else—that's mm-hmm. their time they're giving you. That's their heart that they're giving we you. We should value it. Yeah, we should. And I don't think we do enough. And that's why these things, these devices are so dangerous is because... You're talking about the phones. Yes, we've forgotten how to have a conversation eye to eye. Do you de-phone every now and then? Yeah. How often and when and what's the... Uh, well, one of the great things about theater is it's one of the last places on earth where you can actually ask people to turn off their phones and they will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's that's a pretty cool do thing. Do you have phone-free rehearsals oh, yeah. at the theater? Oh, yeah. Is it hard to enforce? No. Okay. No. Okay. I mean, no one wants to be that person that in the middle of the rehearsal, right when you're in the middle of discovery, there's a... Yeah. That's, uh, not a, that's not a good feeling. Are you a director that can bring the wrath when you need to? Uh, not anymore. I used to be. I'm, really? I'm much more mellow now. Why I, changed? Um, I just, I guess, more confidence. Um, you know, I think, I think that kind of behavior comes from insecurity. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people that throw hissy fits and do diva things or, or this is just insecurity yeah and you're directing a play right now that's correct i directed a play called um the new colossus which is um about immigration and um what it is to be a refugee hmm. we started working on it in workshop 
couple of years ago when the Syrian refugee crisis was happening, and we started asking ourselves the question, what is an immigrant? Uh, what defines uh, a refugee? Mm -hmm. And um, then we started looking into our own histories, and I asked all the actors that were involved in the piece to do some research on their ancestors mm -hmm. and how their relatives got here and what mm -hmm. was that journey. So, so we started asking the question, you know, of ourselves. And, and when we performed the play, uh, at the end of the play, I asked the audience, uh, what is your story? What, 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 how many people here are refugees? How hmm. many people here are immigrants? Do you get a lot of folks in the room? Every night there's an immigrant or a refugee in the house. Hmm. And perhaps even more that are afraid to raise their hand. <laughs> well, but and then I ask who, who are sons and daughters of refugees or immigrants, and more and more hands come up, hmm. and then grandsons, granddaughters, great great uh, granddaughters. Yeah, it's a huge, huge, huge story, yeah. and it's a common story. Yeah. Speaking of common stories, I want to talk about your show on HBO mm -hmm. that I'm knee deep in right now. This is a story that could feel common for a lot of people. And before I get it, 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 it it's a story of a family for which everything should be going right, but everything seems to be going wrong. <laughs> like everything. Mm -hmm. uh, the show's called Here and Now. For those that haven't watched it yet, describe it briefly for them, and then we're going to get in the weeds on it. Well, Alan Ball, who did uh, Six Feet Under and um, True Blood, mm -hmm. uh, wrote this really beautiful script that I read about a year and some change ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a story that, for me, really resonated to today because it's talking about the disillusionment that uh, a lot of people in my generation are hmm. feeling having worked uh, all their lives to for for progressive issues what's and, your generation are you boomer what are you i guess i'm a, a boomer but one of the younger boomers um uh but and the in, in my, the generation after mine as well the, yeah. the, dealing with this um idea that we were making huge progress in some areas, you know, with, as far as tolerance and uh, uh, for not only um, different sexuality, but for uh, different races and working towards uh, my son's generation that is much more advanced than my generation is in that way. And then to see it with this recent election, my character in particular has is in the middle of an existential crisis. He's a philosopher and he's believed in the power of the mind and and the importance of uh, dialogue and he sees all of that going away. Yeah. And uh, Holly's character, Holly, Holly Hunter, Hunter. Yeah. her character uh, is a uh, someone that helps with crisis management in schools and and uh, is experiencing a similar um, disillusionment. Yeah. And our kids uh, are from various parts of the world uh, adopted from mm -hmm. Liberia, from uh, Colombia, from Vietnam, and we have one biological child. Yes. And so uh, they are dealing with emboldened racism. I want to highlight this moment in the show that was very, very powerful. Um, and tell me if I'm giving away spoilers. I don't want to give away too much, folks. I haven't seen it yet. But there is this scene in the pilot where your family is throwing you a 60th birthday party in your house. And you don't want to give a speech. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but Holly Hunter's character is like, you're giving a speech. Thanks, honey. Please don't say anything depressing. 
your character's not feeling it. I don't think anyone, <clears throat> I don't think anyone's life turns out the way they thought it would. And then you go on to give this really intense monologue about how your family has failed or liberal politics has failed or maybe a bit of both. We lost, folks. We lost. I look back on my partnership with this amazing woman and this great experiment that is our family. And I wonder, I really do wonder, did any of it make any difference? Well, damn. (laughs) (laughs) He's going through a little funk. He's going through a little bit. So what does that scene symbolize? Is it about the family or is it about something bigger? It's about something bigger. What is the bigger? The bigger is what we were talking about before, the idea that you can work your entire life for something and then see it all go away and then wonder what the hell had just happened, right? Are you talking about Trump's election? Yeah, yeah. What I'm still grappling with in the show is how much liberal ideology is wrapped up in the family's very portrayal of itself. In that clip we played of you, you call, your character calls his own family a great experiment. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and, like, you hear even in the pilot the way that the children of color are still grappling with the way that their white parents handled their races growing up. Well, I, it, you'll see as the as the show progresses, I think um, at least my character comes to understand that that was a really awful way to describe it. Huh. But if you're talking about their intent, I think their intent was was good, was genuine. It's just that maybe they didn't have the tools to deal with it specifically. Yeah. Well, and and also, like, these are characters, and it seems the show is saying, or at least to me the show is saying, you guys thought you knew it all. You thought that your worldview was the best one. You lived your life according to it, and stuff still blew up for you, and you're still not happy. That seems as if it's a political truth right now Mm -hmm. for a lot of people that are disgruntled by who's in the White House. Mm-hmm. Do you think the show is speaking to folks on that level? Well, I I think I think Alan's intention was to create a family drama. Yes. That dealt with not only this spectrum, but also the spectrum of uh, otherworldliness uh, through the character of Ramon. Ramon, yeah. Um, played by uh, Danny. Uh, who's... Uh, this... Um, this is a whole other element in the show that, yeah, that, that has nothing to, to do too much. Yeah. Right. It has yeah. nothing to do with politics. But it's it has supernatural. To do with, yeah. With something that is unexplained. Mm-hmm. And so the show's operating on many different levels. Yeah. And um, I hope it's a reflection of what's going on now. That was part of the intent as well. Yeah. Uh, to, to talk about this is to ask questions. Is, you know... But I don't believe we've approached it like, uh, you know, we're right, they're wrong. No, you haven't. I, I'm not I, saying I that. I think yeah. that it's more complicated than that. Yeah. And we I, we had discussions when we were doing it, and I know a lot of people have had this discussion. It doesn't help any just to say that, you know, it's a bunch of troglodytes that voted for this guy, and they're all idiots. 
because that's not that's not very empathetic and that's not really trying to get to the truth of what might happen but it's intense and like i don't know it's i was thinking of like what would i nickname this show because I, I like it a lot but it's dark i'm like you could call it crying at, crying at home alone you could call it nothing matters and we all die alone you could call it things will never be right like this show goes You're really into the selling darkness. the show i am selling well. it people it's good to watch <laughs> but like how do you when you take a project know just how far in the darkness to go without going too far it's not my job okay <laughs> you're the star of the show well no I, I my, my responsibility is to find the truth in the character okay and the, and the truth in the scenes that the character is in yeah as far as the shape and the tone of the show that's more the creators and the directors and yeah. writers um I, I i feel that in order to tell this story for my character, I have to go to the darkness. You did. Uh, and I, I did for six months straight. Wait, what do you mean? Well, when we were shooting. Yeah. It was necessary. That was my job. And well, even though I don't live my life in the same way as Greg, and I don't feel I the feel same way. I feel like you're probably a happier person. I'm really happy in my life right now. Uh, so, I, But I guess the joy of acting is to go to a place where you're not. Yeah. Right. And the training it's that good stories aren't about mildly depressed people or kind of happy people. <laughs> <laughs> good stories are people at the end of their rope or in, in an ecstasy of some kind. Oh. So so I always try to make acting choices that really are unafraid of the depths or the heights of emotion. Yeah. And then it's just a matter of getting out of that. So getting out's harder than getting in? Uh not right away. Like the first couple months, I'm cool. The first couple months after a dark role. Yeah. You said, well, when like, you're playing a dark role over a long period yes. of time. I, you know, I'm in and out. Okay. But as time progresses, and this happens on movies too, mm -hmm. towards the end of the shoot, you're kind of... You're stuck in the darkness? not really stuck in the darkness, but it's harder to get out of it, right? So then you're stuck in the darkness. Yeah, but you still can get out of it, but it takes a little longer. And that's not fun. What do you do to get out of it? It's one of the hazards of the profession. Yeah. Um, and so what you try not to do is get out of it by, you know, acting out in bad ways. Self-medicating. Right. Or whatever. So, so what's your get out mechanism? Um, going to the theater. Uh-huh. Yeah. And working. Okay. Um, but, you know, I still, even with that, I still struggled in the last month or two of that with, you know. With here and now? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the way it manif the way it manifested for me was, uh, you know, I put on 15 pounds. You know, that it was, and. and you earned it. That's I know, fine. but, you know, as an actor, you know, you, there's a certain, even whatever you may think, there's always going to be a little bit of vanity still there. <laughs> that, 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 you know, you look in the mirror and you go, what happened? You know? <laughs> but uh, I've since, uh, I've since gotten back to a proper weight. Yeah. Okay. All right, time for a quick break here. When we come back, I talk with Tim a little bit more about Here and Now and whether that show would exist without Donald Trump. BRB. 
Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and waiting for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter can help. Their technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com minute. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I'm Linda Holmes. There's more stuff to watch these days than you can ever get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour. Twice a week, we give you the lowdown on what's worth your time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. What I found so interesting about the plot of this series is that I think, at least me personally, the political climate affects the way I consume art. Mm. I mean, like, people are watching your show now in a certain way because of who's president Mm -hmm. that is different than they might have watched it with the last president, no? Yeah, but I believe that if if the election had gone the other way, the series would be still relevant because Mm. because one person is elected doesn't change the fact that there are racists out there. It doesn't change the fact that there are people... That, uh, that are white supremacists out there. Um, so kind of the themes of the show, I still believe, would be resonant. Yeah. I think what you might be talking about is, like, specific satire. Uh, and what I think is essential in a moment like this, and I mean real satire. I mean satire that I believe someone once said that real satire is so dangerous that you could be arrested for mm. And that's important right now. Do you think there's real satire out there right now? Not a lot. Why not? Well, I think we have parody and we have people that spoof things. But um, real satire goes that other level, to that other level mm-hmm. that really uh, offends the people that are in power. What's your favorite satire? I don't know. You Do, do you remember the, the National Lampoon? When it was in the, if you if you ever have the opportunity to see some of the National Lampoon from like 1971, hmm. 72, and what they were doing about the Vietnam War, really, that was hardcore satire, dangerous satire. Yeah, uh, it's where it, you know uh, it it it's, it can be offensive, but at the but same time, yeah. it's supposed to be, and it really smacks you. It it makes you really think. Have you done? Have you done? What of your work has been most like that? This biting, biting satire. I think Bob Roberts is a movie that uh, is still relevant now. Uh, there was a satire I did in 1992 mm-hmm. about politics, about mm-hmm. a Republican, a very successful, rich businessman that runs mm-hmm. for political office and is mm-hmm. also a fan of beauty pageants. Um, uh, this, uh, I've I've gotten a lot of. Um, People contacting me about that. Oh, really? Yeah, it's it. It, it, it in a way, it, it's Donald Trump. <laughs> I was looking back through your body of work. It's is it fair to say that you've leaned more towards darker, more unhappy stuff than happy stuff? Mm, I think I've got a pretty good balance in there. Yeah, yeah. Because I was, I was Mystic River, Shawshank. Although Shawshank, I like the ending. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's a that's show. a happy ending that's earned happy actually. Ending. Yeah, yeah. You know, comedies are harder to do. Why? Well, because there's uh, you're 
you kind of know when you're doing a drama that if you're in the truth of it, that you can pretty much, if the script works and the directing works and the shots work, that if you're in the depth of the emotion that you will be conveying a truth that will affect someone. Mm -hmm. With comedy, you don't know whether you're going to get a laugh or not until you're actually watching the thing in front yeah. of people. So it's that fine line of what is the the performance that will capture the truth but also make people laugh. Is there a movie or project you did where you saw it at the end and were like, damn, didn't get those laughs? No. Never. <laughs> Good on you. Good on you. Um, you have been on stage, in film, on TV. Which do you like best? I like all three. Good answer. Uh, I like very much the freedom after I do uh, something for HBO or for Hollywood movie. <clears throat> I like the freedom to go to my theater and develop a new piece and yeah. not have to ask permission mm -hmm. to do that and not mm -hmm. rely on a huge budget to do that. I can still pursue what I believe is important artistically and uh, I've been very blessed to have this organization for the last 36 years. Yeah. Uh, it's provided a level of sanity to, to me that um, I, I it's, you know, it's, success can be a, a challenging thing. Explain. Um, well... <clears throat> You become successful uh, playing a particular role. And I realized as my career was developing that one of the ways I've, I saw other actors gain more and more success was kind of by doing the same role in a way over and over again. Uh, a, a, a limited expectation. And for me, I always wanted to push the boundaries and see if I could do something completely different yeah. the next time I yeah. was working. Yeah. But success can also be insidious because... You, you're, you're all of a sudden surrounded by people that are telling you you're great, and you, it's kind of a non-critical environment. It's not very healthy for the artist because theater, for example, you have to do it in front of an audience, and an audience is not going to be able to lie to you about <laughs> they are either going to laugh or they're not, or they're not, or yeah. they're either going to be moved by it and cry or they're not. Mm -hmm. You can't fake that, mm -hmm. and so there's a level of honesty in that that mm -hmm. I've always. I feel has really been healthy for me to return to again and again and again. I don't ever want to get to that place where I'm playing the same role over and over again. People tell me I'm fantastic. I'm getting richer and richer and I'm, my soul is dying. You know, that's, 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 I feel a real danger for people. Yeah. And so to be able to have a place where you can go in and develop something pure, I think is such a gift. I, I feel like, uh, I feel like it's more important to, Tell the truth to less people than to lie to millions. Oh, I, expound on that. I like that. Um, for example, um, I saw a couple independent movies this year that mm -hmm. were just so beautiful. Which ones? Uh, my favorite movie of the year was The Square. What's that about? Uh, it's about a, a guy in the art world who becomes involved in this really petty uh, mm. um, revenge. Hmm. And you see how it kind of dissolves his life. Mm -hmm. uh, didn't make millions of dollars, but really inspired me. And well, I'll think about that film for a while. The other movie I loved was The Florida Project. Yeah. Which is, you know, one of these rare films that takes a look at what it is to be poor. 
but does it without you know it being a crime drama mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. I, and i i grew up poor so i i kind of knew that world and i was like really grateful that it was so honestly mm-hmm. and um viscerally portrayed yeah. it didn't make millions and millions of dollars mm-hmm. so for me i'd rather be in that than in something that is making 100 million dollars that is not really touching anybody yeah. in that profound a way yeah Sure, of course, I've in at t- stages in my career I've done things because I needed the money. And, but I tried to keep that to a minimum. Okay. Can and you share the most I needed the money? I think the did? was the most reason was I think it was Green Lantern. Okay. I played a small part in it. Got that comic book money. money. Yeah, but I at the same time I was like, you know, it was benign for me. Okay. Um but I guess what I'm saying is that I'm in it for the long run. Okay. I'm in it to tell the truth. Okay. I'm in it to figure out new ways of saying things. Uh-huh. And if that's on film, fantastic. If that's in theater, fantastic. It, it for me, it's the the work that matters, mm-hmm. not the uh, massive audience. One more break here. I will talk with Tim about the Shawshank Redemption in less than sixty seconds. <laughs> We'd like to thank our sponsor who brings you this message, Discover Card, who alerts you if they find your social security number on any one of thousands of risky websites. Discover believes there are some things that you just need to know. It's just another way Discover looks out for you, not just your account. And best of all, social security alerts are free for Discover Card members. All you have to do is sign up online. Learn more at discover.com slash free alerts. Limitations apply. NPR's Code Switch tackles race and identity in America with humanity and humor. You'll laugh, you'll learn, you'll get uncomfortable. It's worth it. Find Code Switch on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'd be remiss, and you tell me no if if you're tired of hearing about it, but The Shawshank Redemption is such an amazing movie. Thank you. That still speaks to me, and I love, and I discovered... um, it is leaving Netflix in April. Mm-hmm. It makes me sad. I'll still find ways to watch it. I feel like TBS is always running it. That's true. That's true. <laughs> um, do you ever get tired of being attached to that film? No. No, I'm proud of that film. Really proud of that film. I'm really, um, I mean, I, you know, I've talked to Morgan about this, and it's a pretty special I one. love how casually your first name bases with Morgan Freeman. It's so well, cool. Well, he's a friend of mine. He's a friend of yours. Are you guys still close? Uh-huh. That's so cool. Anyways, I cut you off. Go ahead. Uh, You're talking to I, it's, uh We were talking about it, and, you know, it's it's unlike other films uh, that people talk to you about. It's a, it's very important to people yeah. in a deep way. Um, and it's beyond just liking the film. It's more profound than that. Uh, I've had people tell me that it's shifted the way they think, mm-hmm. that uh, it brought them out of a depression. Yeah. That it made them um, uh, understand a deeper truth about themselves. Yeah, that's a pretty cool thing to be involved in. And when people are telling you, pretty much on a daily basis, you're in my favorite movie of all time. That's a pretty cool bucket list thing to check. Yeah, off. you I bet. know, that's a pretty I you bet. know, that's uh, you know, I don't have to do that now in my life. 
be in someone's favorite film. <laughs> You've of all done time. it I've done for millions and, of people. And probably. I'm really grateful when people do that because I, I, it's something that it's a movie I'm proud of. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, 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 I often think about what the opposite would be. You know, I was talking to a friend and was like. Suppose I got famous for a ridiculous sitcom called The Kooky Magoobers, and every time I, <laughs> every time I went out in, in public, they said, "Do the Kooky Magoober thing." Yeah, I love that. You know, <laughs> like imagine being sixty years old and having to deal having with to that. be Kooky Magoober. <laughs> you are not Kooky Magoober, my friend. <laughs> yeah, there was this beautiful thing you said about Shawshank. Uh, I think a little bit recently, you said, and I'm going to quote you on it. You said it's one of the few movies about a loving relationship, really a love story about two men that doesn't involve car chases or is a buddy comedy. Yeah. I like that. And you're right. As soon as I read it, I was like, he's right. Hmm. It's so, it's still, in 2018, rare to find true, unvarnished, male-to-male friendship and relationship and kinship that is unfettered with all this other stuff around it. Why is that still? It's, Yeah. (laughs) I mean, we don't have enough time for that conversation. That's a little insight, exactly. <laughs> a little insight into one of our problems. But the other thing is also the heroism in that movie isn't a fight. Mm. It's achieving a library. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then playing Mozart mm-hmm. to everybody. Mm-hmm. That's the rebellion. Yeah. That's it's beautiful, beautiful, small rebellion. Yeah. That's Stephen King. That's the that's the beauty of his writing. Yeah, and the beauty of your acting, good sir. Thank you, bringing that to life. I know I got to let you go, but this was a true delight. Thank you. My brothers are going to be over the moon because he loves Shawshank. I'm gonna call and be like, "Guess who I talked to today?" What's his name? His name is Ruben. Say out of Ruben for me. I love it. All right. (laughs) Thank you, Tim Robbins. Okay. Tim Robbins, check out his show here and now, Sundays on HBO. The first season of that show it wraps on April fifteenth. If you are enjoying this show, dear listener, please do us a favor. Leave us a review on Apple Podcast. And as always, do not forget to send me audio of you sharing with me the best thing that happened to you all week. Record yourself talking to me. Send that file to samsanders at npr.org. And it could end up in one of our Friday podcast episodes. And also, it could end up on the radio. All right, we are back on Friday for our weekly wrap of all the news that's fit to talk about. Until then, I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon.